0: Hi, welcome to Fighting to Win, the series where we share real stories from the front lines of the environmental justice movement. We're the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, and we support activists around the country who are fighting against toxic chemical pollution in their communities. Most of them are everyday people who discovered toxics threatening their neighborhoods and decided to create the change that they need. Here at CHEJ, we connect communities to each other. So when COVID-19 hit, we launched a webinar series to bring organizers, activists, and community leaders together despite the distance. These conversations have been rich and inspiring, and now we want to share them with you as a reminder that we are together in this fight. And not just that, but we are fighting to win. Subscribe to Fighting to Win now wherever you listen to podcasts, and thank you for being with us. Involved in in the fight against the um, uh, oil and uh, gas industry for <laughs> for a very long time. Um, and Mr. Kelly, I would just want to say welcome and thank you so much for making the time to to be with us here.
1: Well, it's most certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: Yep. So um, tell us uh, uh, tell us about yourself and your work currently um where in texas are you and um what have you been up to
1: well um start off my name is hilton kelly that's h-i-l-t-o-n-k-e-l-l-e-y and i am the founder and director of the community in power and development association incorporated located in port arthur texas down here on the gulf coast we are about a hundred miles uh i would say east southeast of Houston, Texas. And um, the culture here is basically Creole. It's gumbo, it's crawfish, it's okra, it's all of that. And uh, we have a very vibrant community here in Port Arthur, Texas Texas, on the Gulf Coast. Um, I was born and raised here in Port Arthur, joined the United States Navy when I was 19 years old. I was stationed in Alameda, an Alameda Naval Air Station, which is right next to Oakland, California. It's an island, actually, and um, there is the Oakland naval uh, uh, Naval base that is that is there in the um, Alameda area. Mm-hmm. So after I got out of the service in 1984, I stayed in California, pursued a career in acting and on stage and television and whatnot. I uh, worked on quite a few television sto- shows, such as Nash Bridges uh, with Don Johnson. I've worked with... Um, Whoopi Goldberg and Made in America, just to name a few, and I kind of took a sabbatical from that back in 2000, and I decided to come home to Port Arthur just to visit and to kind of, you know, see what was going on in my hometown. Hadn't been here in a while, and came back home, and I sort of was um, really thrown back by what I saw. Um, Our downtown area was dilapidated. Uh, We had a lot of um, activities that I grew up with here in the city of Port Arthur that had been sort of taken away from the community. Uh, we had the YMCA on the west end of Port Arthur, uh, but there was no more YMCA. There was no uh, more Mason activities in the area. A lot of our kids were playing in the streets and in the parking lots. And of course, um, back around the, the late late 1990s and 2000. The crack epidemic was still plaguing our community as well. Not to mention the environmental conditions that I grew up with here in the city of Port Arthur was seemed to be just as bad in 2000 as it was back in the 70s. So um, looking at all of this you know I went back to California but I kept thinking about my hometown and how someone needed to do something to help uh, to alleviate some of the problems that the community was being plagued with when it comes to pollution, when it comes to the lack of activity for our children. Mm. And so, um, honestly, I had a I had a dream that just showed me where it wasn't for me to put a plan together to give to someone else, but uh, the powers that be was showing me that it was something that I think that the universe, or God, if you will, wanted me to do. Sure. And so, within a three-month period of having come here to visit, I came here to visit in February 2000, but by May, I had moved back with a plan and uh, had put together my mission and uh, got to work with with doing my job.
0: You know, that's something that um, is really incredible, that moment where we say, okay, we recognize that there's something wrong, that something needs to be fixed. Now, most people, honestly, would say, oh, yeah, somebody really ought to get on that. And they move on and they say, I'm going to send a tweet. I'm going to send an email. Maybe I'll write a strongly worded letter to a representative. Right. Um, And then they might've carried on. What do you think made you, you know, I mean, you certainly went all the way. You said, I'm, I'm really, I'm here, I'm here to stay and I'm going to fix
1: this. Well, you know, I mean, even when I was in, in Oakland, California, I, I was always conscious of the environment which I live in. And, um, you know, my mother, when I was a kid, always used to ask me, why do you worry about such things? I would ask, how far are the stars up in the sky? Well, where does the sky end? My mother would tell me, Hilton, I don't know. Go outside and play with the rest of the kids, right? And so, but those things always were were on my mind. And whenever I saw an injustice in my community, I remember growing up here in Port Arthur, and uh, the black and white issue was a major issue. Blacks lived on the other side of the track, um, which is the west end of Port Arthur, the historic African-American community in the low-lying areas, and white folks lived on the east end of Port Arthur. But then when they tried to segregate the schools back in 1966, 67, you know, we weren't accustomed to white teachers coming into our community trying to tell us what to do, and and then we had, you know, we some of us were being bused to the east end of town. It was a really tough time. But yet within that time, there was a lot of disturbance. There was a lot of fighting between black and whites. You know, I'll never forget this little one kid, little white kid who had to come to our school. Mm-hmm. He, he was having a tough time at it. And, you know, some of the guys would pick on him a lot. And one time, you know, somebody slapped him and, you know, it really bothered me. So I jumped in the middle of the situation mm-hmm. and I said, look, this is not right. It, you know, it doesn't matter where this kid come from. You know, you guys are are doing a serious disservice to us as a people and and, and to the unification and what they're trying to do. And I was a little kid standing up for this guy and I took a chance of getting my behind beat as well, but yet I've always been that guy who wanted to help the underdog or to support, you know, something that is good or that I saw as being good and always wanted to do something just to make a difference, to help make the world a better place. As a matter of fact, I'm an Eagle Scout. You know, I was, a, I've been an Eagle Scout. I uh, became an Eagle Scout when I was 16 years old. And I uh, even took it to another level because I've always wanted to help make the world a better place. And um, that's just my nature. But yet the question that's been asked sometimes, do you believe that leaders are born or created? I think it's just a combination of both, really. Because if you, you first have to have concern and compassion for others around you in order to want to stand up and make a difference in the world i mean i could have been a very selfish guy myself i was working at my dream job i'm a member of the screen actors guild um matter of fact when i came home to port Arthur, i was working on nash bridges among stars like don johnson and but at the same time you know i came home and i saw a need so i took a sabbatical from that that world to come home to make a difference in the community that had done so much for me so really it's just in my heart to make a difference and I'm just glad that the powers that be showed me that there was a need for much of what I had learned in my travels around the world, being in the service, having gone overseas uh, two terms. I've done two Packs, Philippines, Japan, Thailand. I've seen mm-hmm. real poverty, I've seen real struggle. And uh, coming back home to see my hometown falling victim to economic depression, uh, the lack of services to our, our hometown community, And I just wanted to make a difference to turn that around because I know that life can be a lot better providing people work together and have compassion for one another and try to eliminate the systemic racism that plagues our country.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's, uh, so let's talk about that for a minute, um, because I can't imagine uh, the sort of, you know, quote unquote culture shock moving back to Texas from California, right? So you see all this, Uh, blight, you see all these issues, right, happening in your hometown. Um, I'm wondering, like, between you fighting on just, you know, justice on the environmental end, but also fighting and dealing with race issues, just being a black man in America, like, how do those two uh, mesh in for you?
1: Well, really, I mean, it's something that that I've grown up with all my life. Um, I mean, I was born in 1960, as a matter of fact, my birthday is on the 18th of this month, which is which is a week ago from today, actually. Um, being born here in Port Arthur and being very, very focused on how things operate in our city and within the school system, I mean, the first time I got slapped in my face was by a white woman, it was by my fifth grade Uh, teacher at Booger T Elementary School, Uh, she had got in my face and was saying something to me and I didn't like it, so I spoke back, spoke up for myself and she slapped me. And so I got up out of that classroom and I went home and I got my mother. My mother came to the classroom and she tried to argue my case, but of course, you know, the powers that be within the school board, which was basically an all-white school board, um, they didn't see an issue with it and they uh, commanded me to go back to class. And my mother really took it to the highest level she could take it. But yet I learned something from that incident. I learned that, you know, that there are certain powers in the community that that you have to learn to deal with. And there are certain ways you have to learn to navigate in the community, you know, as you grow. And I've learned to um, identify a danger when it's present. And I've learned how to deal with it. But yet when it comes to dancing around Uh, economic issues and racism issues in the city of Port Arthur uh, you have to you have to use your wits you have to really be focused and um, understand what what road you should go down when you're walking in certain communities so to speak and so that being said you know I always knew that we had some major disparities in our community but yet what we had in our community was what we built as a people because in the African-American community in the West End we had black businesses. I mean, we had black grocery stores. We had black pharmacies. We had a black movie theater. Everything on that end, we, we made it. We built it with our hands. But then when desegregation happened and uh, the more affluent people in our community decided that they wanted to move across the track, well, it sort of left our community barren of our school teachers, of the policemen that lived there. People wanted to come to where the, the, the grass was greener on the other side. And what they found that it wasn't as green on the other side, but by that time, our community had been depleted of all its businesses. And so it sort of led to um, the dilapidated situation, which I saw when I came back home in 2000. Not to mention when fair housing came about in the 70s, uh, where African-Americans and people of color could live wherever they want. Mm. Well, we had a serious white flight out of Port Arthur, Texas, which means a lot of our banking institutions went with it. As a matter of fact, we don't have a bank in Port Arthur still to this day. We had one for uh, about maybe 20 years after white flight took place, like in 73. But after that, you know, all the bank institutions sort of took off. And it's really difficult for people to get loans to fix up their properties, even though they may qualify. Mm-hmm. But yet, you know, so it just goes to show that um, there is some major issues when it comes to discrimination. And even when it comes to the environmental uh, issues here in the city of Port Arthur, on the west end of Port Arthur, we have about thirty percent of all the oil refineries uh, within Jefferson County located in that area, and that's the yeah, predominant yeah. low-income area.
0: Like I was just thinking, okay, so you you paint the picture really expertly, right? Of why and how all of these systems work together to lower uh, property values to lower the price of land. And once the price of land and property gets low, then who, who moves in? Right. But, but the industry. So, um, specifically like, so you're there in 2000. Um, what were some of the, some of the bad actors that you identified very quickly?
1: Well, some of the industries I identified that was uh, dumping tons and tons of legal and illegal emissions to the air was a company called Primcore. Mm. Now Primcore is presently uh, Valero. Uh, but when it was Primcore, there was a manager there and his name was Don Coensley I believe mm. it's pronounced. I but like that you name names. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Don Quinsley, he, he was a manager from the old school and, um, when I started speaking up against environmental racism in my community, uh, I remember being on the news on Channel 4, and this was like in 2002, I believe it was, um, and uh, this plant manager came out, or they a liaison person came out saying that, you know, the emissions that they're dumping out is no harm to the community, and they've been dumping it out for years and what have you, but yet when we started doing our research and started meeting with the state regulatory agencies, what we found was that uh, the PremCore oil refinery was out of compliance with the Clean Air Act laws for many years, and they had somehow been flying under the radar. But I think it's because the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality hadn't been doing their due diligence when it came to enforcement or when it came to pushing these guys to stay within compliance. Mm -hmm. And then in the West Side of Port Arthur, we have the Motiva oil refinery. Now Motiva oil refinery was formerly Texaco but now that is Motiva Motiva is an, an oil refinery uh, that's 100% Saudi Arabian owned um, they put out 630,000 barrels of oil per day now when you're producing that much petroleum and you're you're making gasoline kerosene Uh, you're making all kind of plastics and what have you, you're going to have a large amount of emissions that are being blown out of your stacks. And so with that being said, these guys um, were very, very dirty uh, back in 2006, 7, 8, and all the way up to 2009, but we started weighing in and fighting and pushing. And so finally, we proved that they had been out of compliance for a lot of years with their emission levels. And so we launched a, a, a campaign to shut them down or to basically get them to come into compliance. And so we ended up uh, putting together a program with some attorneys to where we filed for a lawsuit against these guys, a class action lawsuit. And so eventually, to make a long story short, we ended up getting these guys to put in the proper controls to help reduce the amount of emissions that they were dumping into the air. But for many years, the good old boy network in this area uh, was prevailing. They were able to dump whatever they want into the air without any complaints from the citizens. But the citizens here had not been educated on the laws and regulations that were in place to help govern these guys, to help keep them within compliance. And Mm -hmm. the state wasn't doing a good job at educating them either. So people just really sat back. And just felt like it's just the way it is. There's nothing they can do about it. But uh, I came back and I started digging. And this gentleman by the name of Mr. Alfred Dominique, he passed away in 2008. He was my mentor. He helped me to learn exactly uh, how to fight these guys. And he helped me to understand the laws and regulations that were governing them and how to go through their compliance records and, you know, call them to task. And so, due to the help of Mr. Dominique and uh, Reverend Malvo, who's in Beaumont, Texas, Mm -hmm. and Denny Larson, who was the head of the Bucket Brigade, these guys really helped me to forge forward and to learn how to fight these industries and push them to do the right thing. But it's really, I would say this it's a really uh, tough job because many times what you're doing, you're not only fighting against those industries to get them to come into compliance but you're also fighting with some of the people in the community which you're fighting for, because <laughs> they look at you as a villain. They they buy into the rhetoric that you're going to run these industries away. We need those jobs. You need to stop doing what you're doing. You don't know what you're talking about. You need to go back to California. I heard it all, but, but yet I chose to stay on my path because I knew it was the right thing to do. And ultimately, what has happened is many of the people that work at the plant, now they get it. One of the questions I used to pose uh, to people that would approach me saying, well, you know, you're going to kill our community. You're going to run those industries away. And I would ask them, i say, you know, every time you go to work, you're breathing in sulfur. You're breathing in 1,3-butadiene, which is a known carcinogen. You're breathing in uh, um, hydrogen sulfide, sulfuric acid. And Mm -hmm. I said, now, your home is only about a quarter of a mile away from that fence line. When you're at home, do you ever smell that sulfur? Yeah, I smell it sometimes, but it's just the way it is. But no, wait a minute. Do you smell the benzene in the air? Yes, I do. Well, guess what? If you smell it, your grandbaby is smelling it. Your children are smelling it. Your wife is smelling it. And they're being just as impacted by those emissions as you are at work. And they don't even work there. They're not even benefiting directly from those industries that you work for. So how do you feel about it now? Well, I never thought about it that way. Well, I'm not only trying to protect your life, but I'm trying to protect our kids, our elderly, and our community as a whole. So then people started to get a better understanding of why it was important to reduce the emissions because initially they were thinking, well, it's just a price I gotta pay to put food on the table. No, and even if you work there, you should not have to sacrifice your life to go and make a living for your family. You should be able to go and work in an environment where it's safe and healthy for you to do your job, make a paycheck and go home and take care of your family. Your 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 president of your company or your plant manager has no right to put you in harm or in danger simply for them to make trillions of dollars every year. You That's should right. be able and, to go home.
0: Oh, you see, I'm getting fired up just hearing you talk because you're talking to a. Uh, uh, decade plus union organizer (laughs) and i've heard all of those things right and it doesn't matter what industry i happen to be organizing latina hotel workers um and folks who worked in restaurants and casinos and parking garages and different cities and literally it just never fails that, you know, in this case, it would be, you know, Mr. Texaco or Mr. Valero, who were just nowhere near Port Arthur, right? They're, they're sitting uh, very comfortably figuring out different ways that they can divide people, because that's the only way that they'll keep making the, the revenues they're making,
1: right? Because they know, right.
0: like, look, if people get together, what happens?
1: That's exactly right. Well, one of the things we we did, and through my advocacy, you know, my voice started being heard in Houston, uh, Washington D.C., uh, New York, and uh, as the media started to come in to get my story, I had the opportunity to sort of fly over uh, one of mm. the plants here. It's called Oxbow Calcining. So, Oxbow Cal Signing, this industry, this what they do is take all of the petroleum waste material that's left over after they make the gasoline and the kerosene and jet fuels and whatnot, they take that that gook, the, the coke that's left over, and they further process it to make asphalt material and other materials from it. But at the same time, when they when they cook it, well what happens is the community smells like someone is tarring their roof all day mm. long. And it really makes you sick to your stomach. It really, it, it makes your throat itchy because what you have in that material is heavy metals. You have a lot of sulfur because it's, it's filled with sulfur. These are the impurities that they can't use in gasoline and kerosene and jet fuel. So they, they process it to where they extract all that material and then it's passed on to oxbow calcining. And so with that being said, you know, out to Texas Citizens for many years have been getting a disproportionate amount of toxins from these industries, unlike any other community. I mean, we have the 10th the, 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 uh, the highest mortality rate when it comes to cancer in the state of Texas here in Port Arthur. One out of every five households here have a child or someone that has to use a nebulizer or take breathing treatments before they go to school or before they go to work. Mm. Um, one out of every five households have someone in it with cancer or they had someone that died from cancer as a matter of fact a good friend of mine by the name of um mr eddie brown uh, he came out of school in 1977 him uh and about six of his classmates uh have succumbed to cancer mr eddie brown is still battling with cancer he's a really good friend of mine and i've taken him to md anderson for some of his appointments uh when his wife couldn't do it but yet at the same time he's a fighter But yet, he's utilizing all of his resources that he saved for his retirement, just trying to survive. And he wanted to leave that for his family. But yet, all of his money is going to just trying to stay alive. And we're doing the best that we can to support him and to help him in this fight. And we believe that he's going to make it. But yet, at the same time, there are many families here in the city of Port Arthur that hasn't been so fortunate. They didn't have the resources to go to the hospital. So... I just mentioned a name, Paula Dahl. Paula Dahl, she came out of school with Mr. Eddie. Uh, she was alive today, she'll be 60, going on 61 years old. She died like 12 years ago, but prior to her death, she lost her 16 year old daughter to cancer. Uh, she lost her mother to cancer. So, you know, you just, after a while, you just sort of stop counting and you just start fighting. And I have been fighting now for 21 years to continue to make these plants Uh, a little bit more safer to work at and to be around. But at the same time, now we have the Trump administration that is fighting to undo all of the regulations that have been put in place to help protect human health and the environment. Everything that that the executive order 12898 that Clinton put in place uh, a few years back, he's trying to undo that executive order. He's also trying to undo all the good that Barack Obama has done. So now he just wants to allow these industries to dump at will. And if you look at who's over the Environmental Protection Agency, um, this guy here was a, a, a lobbyist for the oil and gas company and for, for the coal companies. So it's like the Fox Garden and Hen House is Mr. Wheeler. I mean, it's like, who does that? And the Environmental Justice Department within the EPA has been eradicated. They can't even do their jobs. Budget has been slashed. So really, this guy is really doing a serious disservice, not only to cities like Port Arthur, um, Richmond, California, South Philly, um, uh, uh, Buffalo, New York, but wherever you have heavy industry, this guy is helping to put a nail in the coffin of thousands of Americans who love our country, who have served our country and continue to serve our country. So why don't he do something to help these these communities to survive and to be less impacted by these industries instead of opening the door for these industries to dump further, uh, further more, more and more sulfur dioxide into the air and benzene, which are known carcinogen materials. It doesn't add up.
0: No, uh, it doesn't. And, um, you know, look, the so much has been said about the administration that I mean there's nothing to add except to say that um, he is renting here in Washington DC he doesn't own and um, I have a feeling that when people get fed up uh, that people really rise up organize and make some change and and that's what I'm I'm feeling about November Um, I am I am uh, really optimistic because of the people that I see uh, doing work on the ground between the young people who are just incredible and doing amazing Mm -hmm. things, getting together um, to the very, very old people and everybody in between from coast to coast. I think we're tired of breathing what we've been breathing. Um, Well,
1: one thing I think people should understand is that whether you're a Democrat a Republican, an independent. Everyone need clean air, clean water, and clean land to live on. Clean water to drink and clean food to eat that came out of a uncontaminated uh, soil base. We all need clean air and water, and simply because you do not live right on the fence line of a refinery or a chemical plant or a chemical incineration facility like Veolia that's also on the west side, it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you won't be impacted. I want to show you this photo here. Look at this smoke trail. Mm. Look at that smoke trail. That smoke trail stretched for about 30 miles from the west side community. Oh, my God. So it went well into Louisiana. It went over the mid-county area, which is a more affluent community, predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Here in the city of Port Arthur. And as this soot lights over the community and travels, it's slowly descending the fine particles, the, the 2.5 microns. They're raining down on people and smaller. And so people as far away as 10, 15 miles from Port Arthur have pockets of cancer uh, victims, pockets of communities where there is a large number of people with cancer. Look at this. This is up to about thirty miles. I took this photo, mm. and then look at this one. This is right above the West Side community. This was some county emission release where a lot of gases were released, and it fell right on top of the community. You could smell the heavy sulfur. My God. So these are the things that we're dealing with, and what upsets me is when I look into the community and I see little babies still playing in the park when they hear the loud explosions because they they become complacent. Now this is a sulfur release. You see the the yellowish, mm-hmm. cloud that that's oozing from it from that. Industry? Oh yeah, we can see that. That is sulfur. That's pure sulfur. And when it hit that housing project, people were running out of their homes because they thought they had they had a gas leak in their home. They were trying to get out of that plume, but didn't know where to go. So finally, the EM, EMTs started coming through the community. We had about four ambulances that pulled up trying to get people to safety. People were just their Eyes were watery. This is what we deal with. And if you get a good snapshot at a distance as you're going into Port Arthur, this is Mm -hmm. what you see. All those emissions going up toward the clouds. Yeah. So with Trump rolling back the clean air laws and regulations and sort of telling the Environmental Protection Agency and all the state regulatory agencies to stand down and slow down on enforcement, It's a death sentence. It's a death sentence to our children. Mm -hmm. It's a death sentence to our elderly. And it's a death sentence to us as as a human race. It should not be allowed. Even the people that work at those plants admit by activists pushing them to do the right thing, to put in the flare gas recovery units, to put in the sulfur recovery units, to put in the monitors which monitor the gases that leave their facilities. It's helping them to save product. It's helping them to save money when it comes to fines that they have to pay whenever they get caught. It's helping the communities to, to live longer and to support them better. But yet Trump is undoing all the good that was done, and even the people within those industries, which I speak to, don't understand why this guy would do this. Yeah, so it's not I mean, fair to us as a community. It's not fair to us as a nation.
0: No, and, and, and you, you, you said it so well, um, and I can't help to think that you know what, this is on some level, it's just not our job, right? Like a citizen's job is just to, you know, we raise kids, we go to work, we enjoy ourselves, we try to take care of one another, we worship if we wanna worship, we play music, we play sports. Like it's not our job, Mr. Kelly, to be researching regulations of the gas industry and telling them what kind of filters they need to put on their (laughs) stacks. Right. right? Right. You know whose job that is? That's the government's job. Like that is what they're there for. That is what we pay taxes for, right. To be regulating this stuff. And that's why they have scientists and they have an EPA to do this. It's not our job. Right? It's like this is, you know, it got me going when I became an organizer. I'm like, wait, you know, so I'm I'm South American, right? So I'm like, wait, this is all the work we have to do here in America just to get people to vote? Hmm. Right? Well, just I once told- every four years or once every two years? Is this how hard it is? Would they yeah. need to register and we gotta do this and we gotta do that? This is outrageous.
1: You know, and I i like to kind of piggyback on what you said. We shouldn't have to fight that hard, but You know, the way this system is set up, it seems like whether or not we breathe clean air, drink clean water is contingent upon which uh, uh, Democratic or or economic or or Republican body is in office at that particular time. Because it seems like when Democrats are in office, meaning uh, Barack Obama, Clinton, we, we have a more friendlier EPA. But when the Republicans are in office, such as the Bush administration, when they were in there, they did the same thing. Yeah. They tried to relax laws and regulations. Now we have the Trump administration. And look at what he's doing. I mean, I was there at the NEPA uh, hearing, the uh, National Environmental Policy Act hearing back in February. I was there, and I testified before that body. And I said the same thing then, and I said now. Our right to clean, breathe clean air and drink clean water is a God-given right. It should mm. not be contingent upon whether or not there's a Democrat or Republican in office. I believe that the Environmental Protection Agency should be a nonpartisan agency and it's all hands off by all parties. Allow those people to do their job. They have a budget, they have they're being paid to do it, they're being paid to protect us, they're being paid to protect the land, the air, and the water. Let them do their job. Don't pressure these guys because of politics. It's because Mm -hmm. of politics that thousands of children are dying because of cancer. It is because of politics that thousands of Americans have succumbed to cancer. And every year we have more and more people dying from cancer. The numbers are growing. Back in 1970, this is when the Environmental Protection Agency was put into action. 1970s, prior to 1970, it was a no holds barred. You, could, you, you didn't have any catalytic converters on your cars. Uh, industries mm. weren't regulated on how much sulfur they could dump into the air. They weren't regulated on where they could dump or how they can dump. Hell, we have some illegal dump sites right here in the city of Port Arthur mm. where they were dumping tons and tons of petroleum waste material right behind Carver Elementary School, of course, on the west side. I went to Carver Elementary, kindergarten, ni- 1965. And I never knew that was going on. I was a kid, my mother didn't know anything about it. And me and my brothers used to make jokes about the smell of the air, the rotten egg smell. And my mother and everyone else in our community would always say, oh, be quiet, that's money you smell. But now as a man, I knew it was death that I was smelling. And so fast forward from 1960s, or from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s to 1970, we're just getting an EPA, really? And it was because of the number of people that have lost their lives, and science started catching up with why they were losing their life. They started catching up with the smog in the air. Back in the 40s and 50s, in New York City, Chicago, even here in Houston, Texas, you couldn't hardly see the sun because the smog was so thick. And a large number of people had, had respiratory problems. So now science understands where it was coming from. And now they implement a plans and put together this Environmental Protection Agency. And things started to get better. Our air is clear. The, the number of people dying from asthma and respiratory systems have, have gone down. Hypertension has gone down. And so now Trump wants to all undo all the good that was done. It's insane. And it's, it's criminal. And it should not be allowed by the American people.
0: Well, that's why he's getting undone in November. I see the chat. I see Lou saying that the world needs more Hilton Kellys, and I agree. Thank you. Now, the Valero Corporation might disagree, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell you, those guys have really stepped up their game uh, with the new management that they have. Uh, They still have a lot of work to do. I understand some of their facilities or have emissions that are in Houston that are sort of high. and the. the uh, Tejas organization, Juan Perez, mm-hmm. uh they are doing everything they can to help get them to reduce their emissions. And so we have to continue to push forward. I mean, we cannot sit back and allow our communities to suffer. And if you want to organize, if you want to get things done in your community, you don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because of what people may say. I mean, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Let's just mm. face it. If you sit mm-hmm. back and do nothing, you, you're, 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 you're going to suffer. But if you stand up and say something, you're still going to suffer because people are going to speak up for you in some cases and some people are going to speak up against you. But you just have to know that you're doing the right thing. And numbers don't lie. When you have laws and regulations that govern certain industries or certain laws that are in place and people are breaking those laws when it comes to your emission levels, you're allowed to dump so many tons of sulfur dioxide, but yet you're superseding that by at least 100%, you're breaking the law. And those laws are in place for a reason. It's to protect human health and the environment, which we all need. So therefore, if you need to organize, organize. Do not worry about what people say. Do not worry about being the only one in a meeting many times. You have to do it because it's the right thing to do.
0: That's right. Um, I'm getting a question here in the chat. Uh, Mr. Kelly, my name is Kawan Berry. I want to know how can I be part of the fight for my health, my family's health? And my community. So uh, Kawan did not mention where he is,
1: uh, where he is in right now. Um, well, I would just like to tell Mr. Barry that uh, if you would like to get involved with environmental justice issues or civil rights issues, whatever the case may be, uh, just identify an issue in your community where you live. Identify an injustice in your community where you live or where you work. And then what you have to do is find out what are some of the laws that, 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 that speak up against those injustices. And then you do something about it. You start by writing letters. You start <clears> by talking to other people of like minds. And then you get involved with educating yourself more so on a particular issue or an injustice when it comes to the environment. You start there. <clears throat> and then slowly, you bring that truth to the forefront. And then you bring it to the powers that be that can make a difference. And if you, they don't understand what you're talking about, then you learn to work with the media. Bring your information before the media. You go to channel 6, 4, 12, or wherever you're at, and talk to the media and let them know this injustice that's taking place. And then you hold a press conference. Tell the world about it. Someone will listen.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um- so I did a, a very bad job of managing our time here because I want to talk to you about a whole bunch of other things. Uh, so we might need to, to ask you to come back. Um, in the couple minutes we have left, uh, we didn't touch on the COVID uh, pandemic, mm. right? And there, there has been some new information. Um, and actually, my colleague Shayna has written some about this, uh, that air pollution – actually um, helps the transmission of the virus. Um, but uh, tell us just, you know, quickly, I guess, and I hate to do this to you, but- okay. um, What, how, how has the pandemic affected the community in part, Arthur?
1: Well, initially um, I heard about COVID-19 or the coronavirus as it was dubbed in February, uh, back in February about, I think it was February the 6th, I started hearing information about it. As a matter of fact, I was there uh, speaking at the NEPA hearing and meeting with Nancy Pelosi, uh, the House Speaker, and um, we were discussing pollution and what have you. But we really didn't get a chance to touch on the coronavirus because it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. But uh, what we're seeing here in the, in the city of Port Arthur, people finally started to catch on, I would say around March or the beginning of April, they started taking it serious. But by that time, we had already see started seeing a large number of people going to the hospital. Now here in Jefferson County, I think we have somewhere in the ballpark of 1,600 people that has been impacted by the coronavirus. Uh, but here in the city of Port Arthur, we have 54 residents that have died from the coronavirus. And we also have within this county 1,600 people that have had the virus but that have been healed from the virus so we are being impacted here on the gulf coast like everywhere else um the city of houston is being impacted and number one as we all know uh from our health uh, professionals they have told us that people with pre-existing conditions are more susceptible to the coronavirus than others well here in Port arthur texas respiratory issues run rapid throughout our community so if we don't get a handle on this quick we're going to continue to see the numbers grow when it comes to uh people that have succumbed to the coronavirus so it's real and as a matter of fact i'm sitting here in my office now i have boxes of sanitizer and masks that have been contributed to our organization to pass out as a matter of fact the sierra club has played a major part in uh, getting us some of the uh, goods we need to help disseminate in our community. And also, uh, we're working hard to change policies. Uh, as a matter of fact, we work with Environment uh, Earth Justice. We work with uh, the Higher Ground Network when it comes to flooding and hurricanes, which also bring bacteria and germs to the communities. So we're working with a large number of individuals that are in, in policy, that are in the medical field, and uh, we're Doing everything we can to help protect this community and other communities like Port Arthur. That's amazing! Amazing. Um, another question from
0: the chat is, uh, how did you find the attorneys who the attorneys who ultimately uh, worked with you?
1: Well, one of the things that um, that I try to do is identify exactly how can I build a team. And in doing that, um, I started talking with local attorneys, and then I learned that there are attorneys that handle what you call toxic torque cases. Toxic torque cases or cases that are dealing with pollution or people that have been disproportionately impacted by heavy industry when it comes to gases, emissions, or even waste that have gone into the water. And uh, these t- attorneys will take on these toxic torque cases and they'll do it pro bono in the event that You know, they settle the case, and the citizens win a huge lawsuit, and people are paid, monetarily speaking, Um, then that's how they get paid. You don't have to worry about putting money up front. But then there are attorneys, of course, they want to, you know, they'll work with groups, but you have to pay them up front. But Mm -hmm. always try and find an attorney uh, that will work for you pro bono and that will take on what you call toxic tort cases. Okay.
0: So we are sadly out of time. Um, But before we, before we go, I'd like to ask you to uh, share with us, is there something you're reading or listening to that's inspiring you right now Um, that uh, if you can share that, I would, I would love to, you know, have everybody throughout the, uh, throughout the country and throughout the network, to be able to share those resources?
1: Well, uh, when it comes to actually reading something that inspires me, what inspires me is actually going through the the toxic uh, release inventory, the TRI inventory and reports. TRI reports, uh, they sort of give you information about what's going on in your county, what's going on in your community. Uh, You can put in your zip code. And this, the, the TRI reports are put out by the Environmental Protection Agency. And also you can research your state. Uh, I know here in the city of Port Arthur, we have the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. Now in other communities you may have another name for your state regulatory agency, but definitely start off by searching the TRI reports. You can just google TRI reports and you'll get a, a load of information that's going to rain down on you and you have to learn how to navigate through it, but start off by putting in your city name and your zip code, or, I mean your, your area code and um, then you can get tied in into the emission levels and uh, sort of type in exactly what you're looking for, emission levels on sulfur, or you're trying to find out how much uh, um, uh, materials in your water when it comes to chlorine or whatever it may be. So TRI reports is the way to start out. Also, uh, I would encourage you all to find out exactly what is the name of your, um, your state regulatory agency when it comes to the environment. Like I said, here in the state of Texas, it's called the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. Check out um, your state register or go to your city council. Go before, your city mayor should have this information and your city manager. Ask them, who is the, um, the environmental re- regulatory body in the city where you live? And they can share that information with you and get you on the road to understanding exactly what you're being exposed to and how much.
0: There you go. And class is now ended. Thank you for listening to Fighting to Win. To learn more about the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice in the communities we're working with, visit www.chej.org. Subscribe to Fighting to Win wherever you listen to podcasts and stay tuned for new episodes.